Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, today I have another fantastic property heavyweight guest and I'm delighted to share a conversation that I had with Steve Bolton, who is described as an eight-figure founder of Platinum Property Partners, which I understand is one of the most successful franchises in UK history. But he's, he's got other business interests as well, as you will hear about, but he's also an impact investor and philanthropist. Uh, and I'd say he's also a supporter of good causes in the landlording and property community as well. So um, I guess he's got a big heart as well as, as having uh, big business interests. And I'm going to be honest with you, I think you're going to really like this one. So just listen out for gems such as losing everything was the best worst experience in my life and take personal responsibility as we are all self-made. We are self-made successes or self-made failures. Amongst a whole host of other you know, uh, co- you know, sound bites, I guess, or just summaries and insights from Steve that he's picked up over the years. So uh, let's not waste any more time and get straight on with our conversation right now. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, here we are. Uh, it's another uh, episode in the Property Heavyweight series, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined on the call today by Steve Bolton. Steve, how, how are you? Are you well? Very well indeed. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. We had a little preamble conversation before I hit record, and uh, I mentioned that our paths sort of you know, cross on and off over, over time. Um, I remember reading one of your books when I was sort of initially starting out, or in early stages of my own property investment uh, journey. I also know that you've done quite a bit inside and outside of property. So what would be really useful, what I tend to do at this point in time in, in a conversation such as this, is to try and get a bit of a backstory, if you like, um, you know, a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and, and what you're doing now. And I wouldn't, you know, would that be okay if you could share that with, our, with, our, with me and our audience? Yeah, no problem at all, Richard. Happy, uh, happy to do that. I'll give you the first, I'll give you the short version, um, <laughs> and then you can decide uh, which, which, which bits you want to focus in on and focus down on. So, uh, sure. yeah. So, so I guess the short version is, I left school. I'm from Bournemouth, uh, down in in Dorset, where I still live. Spend about half of my time there. Um, four kids, and uh, yeah, that's where I grew up. Lived in South Africa um, for a short while. Did very badly at school. Left with no qualifications at the age of sixteen. Lasted three months in college on a computer training course that was very boring. Um, then sat shelves in a supermarket in Safeways at night, four nights a week, 12 hours a night, um, which actually I loved, believe it or not, because I was earning money and doing something and I was the, the master of my own destiny. Uh, then at the age of 17, got into outdoor pursuits, got an apprenticeship, £25 a week, teaching kids rock climbing, canoeing, archery, rifle shooting. Uh, and uh, at the age of 20, got promoted to be a centre manager, had 20 YTF employees working for me and absolutely loved that. And that's where really I discovered my passion for 
coaching, mentoring, training, teaching, and that's really been the thread that has run through my entire career, really, even even my property journey and the the principle I call stand stand on the shoulders of giants, where you're actually learning from other people, getting coaches, getting mentors, getting help and support. Um, love that. Did that to my mid twenties. Didn't pay very well, even though I enjoyed it. Realized one day I was going to have kids and a family. I'd need to provide for them. Um, so I started a business. Um, didn't have any money. Didn't have any knowledge. Didn't have any real skills. Um, but I did have a natural sort of flair for marketing. Seeing a, seeing an opportunity. Uh, and there was a friend of mine that had built a ropes course, an outdoor pursuit center. We went to business within three years. We were the European market leaders. We then created two of our our own outdoor pursuit centers. Um, and so by 2001, on paper, I was a millionaire, early 30s, happy days. Uh, all went well. But as with most entrepreneurial success stories, the rise is quite often followed by a fall. Uh, I had quite a harsh one. Uh, I lost my home. I didn't go bankrupt. Um, the fact I had a house, it had gone up in value. I'd done some work on it. We lived in it as a family home. My, my house stopped me from going bankrupt. Um, so that was 2001. So early 2002, I've got a newborn baby. I'm living in a rented bungalow uh, with my wife and 11-year-old stepson. No income, a little bit of cash in the bank from the equity from, from my house thinking, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And that really was what drove me into property. Um, and maybe we'll we'll dig into this little property journey in a bit more depth. But got into um, HMOs, spent two years researching it. Um, 2004, bought my first house in multiple occupation. Young working professional people living together, not uh, not student letting, but um, you know, sort of higher standard of property, higher paying tenant, that sort of thing. Bought 20 of those houses from 2004 to 2007 created financial independence for myself and my family. Never again needed to, to work for, you know, trade my time for money, essentially, to uh, to sort of pay the bills and have a decent lifestyle. Couldn't afford Nether Island or anything like that. You know, I'm not a gazillionaire, um, but, but but actually was was financially secure. And I think that's uh, that's probably what most people aspire to, I think, as the, as the next stage, if they haven't already achieved that. I uh, decided to franchise the business in 2007 under the name Platinum Property Partners, which we did. That business still um, 12 years on, still going today. Uh, the franchise network is basically a group of like-minded, high net worth partners, all, all of whom really have more than half a million pounds to invest. Um, we teach them what to buy, where to buy, how to build their own HMO portfolio. Um, they bought now, following our system in the last 12 years, about 1,100 properties. Around about 7,000 new rental rooms have been created. Um, and it's the fastest growing premium franchise in, in UK history. Um, I've since branched out alongside doing that. We own three hotels in Bournemouth, some serviced offices. Uh, I've got a digital marketing company. Um, I'm now really, you know, the best way to describe me is, is an impact investor. Um, doing well by doing good, making a social impact with the investments that I make. We're heavily involved with PPP and a lot of the companies, but in a fortunate position to have no staff reporting to me, uh, take three months holiday every year, have a, a very nice lifestyle, work very hard when I work, but I love what I do. And uh, yeah, that's the, that's the five-minute summary synopsis. <laughs> well, uh, I was furiously jotting down things that we could dig into. <laughs> In all, in all yeah. that um, and you know, it's quite a journey, and I think there's so much in there that can be related. Sure. Um, 
you know, I, I think, you know, I've described you as a heavyweight, um, but obviously where you started wasn't anything, you didn't have no silver spoon in your mouth for a start. Um, you know, you talked about the fact yeah. you left school without any um, qualifications. You, you basically were, were an apprentice and uh, you did some hard, hard grafting. Funny enough, on the subject of hard grafting, I had a quick sneaky peek at your uh, LinkedIn profile before we, we jumped on air. And you, had okay. something, you have something to say about yeah. hard graft, don't you, I think, uh, in a recent uh, comment. Um, so maybe I should like to dive into that a little bit. Is you know, Will hard graft get people to where you are today? A bit of a leading question. Yeah, I mean, I think the I, I, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that was a, a article I wrote or a comment I made about uh, uh, there was a social short uh, piece of content that had gone out by somebody on a TED talk saying that the most important quality for success is grit, i.e., hard work, determination, and so on and so forth. And I think the um, for me, it's it's an important part of it. But why I have a problem with that is because I think actually, you know, from from a uh, it, it's even though I have worked incredibly hard and I continue to, um, I would say 90% of what I do, I absolutely love, you know, so it's in line with my values. I'm, I'm doing work that makes a difference. I only work with people I like and trust. So I think if you have a strong in a compass, i.e. you know what makes you happy, you know what your values are, you know what your really your foundations are as a human being, actually. It's a bit like, you know, I, I liken it to property quite a lot, that you wouldn't build a house if you've got any sense or develop a block of flats on sand or on no foundations, you know, and actually self-awareness, understanding yourself, your values, your operating principles for life, your kind of mission or purpose, if you have one, you know, these are hard things to find out, but uh, and they're not visible. It's a bit like the iceberg below the water. You don't see it, but it's the the biggest part of my success and anybody's success that I've ever met um, are the solid foundations. They kind of know what their skills are, what they're good at, what they want to do, what they don't want to do, what they value, what they don't value. And so, yes, hard work is an important part of it, but I much rather people focus on actually if you find things you like or find things you love, then it becomes... Uh, you know, it's the old saying, isn't it? If you do something you love, you'll never work another yeah. day again in your life. So yeah. <clears throat> some of my friends that, um, you know, look at the way I live my life and the way that I work uh, will actually go, why do you work so hard? Why do you, you know, why are you doing 10 hour days, 12, 14, 16 hour days? Because I love it, you know? So actually, I think if people can reframe hard work into find things that you enjoy, and probably I would say, Richard, one of the greatest skills I ever learned was to find a way mentally for things that I didn't enjoy to become enjoyable, to kind of gamify stuff that there's some things in life that you have to do, right? I was never a numbers person. I was okay at math, but in business, that was not my natural forte, okay? But I realized that if you want to be successful in business, business is a, and property, it's a game played by the numbers. If you do not understand numbers, if you have a phobia or a lack of skill, in numbers, you are almost certainly going to fail. Okay, you you just will, or you have a business partner, so you either need to learn those skills or find somebody you can partner with that will help you. And so, what I did is I found ways to kind of gamify it, to enjoy the learning process, to see the benefits, to make all my spreadsheets really pretty colours because I'm quite design orientated, you know. So, so I think yes, hard work's important, but find a way to do it so that it actually becomes enjoyable 
most of the time. That, for me, is the real trick. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, actually. And, um, you know, it took me quite a long time. Um, you talked about a common thread in your introduction there that's been running through with coaching, mentoring, teaching, for example. And funnily enough, I have a similar one. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, you know, I was doing right. a lot of coaching, mentoring and teaching, if I can use those phrases, for several decades before I realized that actually was my passion and purpose. So, you know, into my late 40s, I realized that's actually why I was brought on this planet and kind of decided to refocus myself, yeah. you know, pretty much exclusively in that direction. So um, it took me a long time to kind of wake up to that. But now, like you, I don't consider anything of, you know, in that direction, at least what I do is work and Sometimes I'm sat next to my wife on the sofa and uh, I've got a laptop or a phone in my hand. I'm sort of tapping away and she's, are you working? <laughs> and I go, no, 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 not working, not working. Because, you know, honestly, some of the things that I'm doing, I really don't consider as work. So anyway, I'm glad that yeah, you made that point about, you know, discovering yourself and your passion and your purpose and also your values. And I think, you know, that I, I get onto the topic of values perhaps a bit deeper. But going back a step uh, then, because um, – Obviously, you, you, you kind of made this transition into property, and I guess most of our audience are property people. Um, so you, I think yeah. the trigger point for that was what you said is that you had a business and you had to close it down and, and pay the bank off, etc. But because you had a property yeah. with some equity in it, and it sounds like quite, you know, you'd done well through it as well, you were able to pay the bank yeah. off. Or you didn't have a, a home of your own, but you, but you, you avoided bankruptcy. As a, as a result of that experience, yep. and it kind of gave you the spark. Is that, is that how it happened back in, what, 2001, did you say, 2001, 2002? That. Yeah, two, uh, early 2002. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely the, the catalyst. I think the, <clears throat> the step before property in terms of the real aha moment was my business partner and I from 94 to 2001 had built this very successful business that actually became two companies um, making close to half a million pounds net profit a year, you know? Um, and, and so losing that and having built that, we didn't read books. We didn't go on courses. We are, you know, Warren Buffett says the best investment you can ever make is an investment in yourself. Uh -huh. Okay. And it took me a real while to kind of come to terms with, okay, this is the best investor alive on the planet today arguably in by most people's standards saying yeah. actually it's not an investment strategy it's not this company it's not you know value investing whatever it might be it's actually an investment in yourself and so for me the trigger was okay i've lost my home i have no source of income i can't provide for my family there has to be people out there who've been there done it and that's as i say you know stand on the shoulders of giants was like I just switched to become an avid reader, a learner. You know, I was a course junkie, but un unlike a lot of people that go on seminars and courses, I actually took action. You know, I wrote everything down. I reviewed it. I took action. And I, I searched for two years to find a business model. And actually, the first part of it was quite quick. You know, um, uh, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest guys who's ever lived on this planet, adjusted for inflation, said, um, the uh the 90 percent of the world's wealth is made or held in property okay um so it was just like well if i'm thinking about a new business to go into why why even start anywhere else you know if you can actually if that's where 90 percent of the wealth in the world is either made or held surely that's a good place to start so so the decision to get into property was actually quite a quick one it was like 
find giants. What do they invest into? What is accessible? I'm not going to be able to start an oil field or, you know, find diamonds in South Africa. Actually, what could I do on my doorstep? And that's what led me to property. The challenge then was actually, how do I make an income from property? How do I have something that is almost bomb-proof from a risk point of view? That will, Because I'd lost my home, Richard, basically, mm -hmm. I thought, I, I, I went from being an optimistic entrepreneur in 2002 to spending probably the rest of my life, certainly I do it on a daily basis, thinking, what can go wrong? What can go wrong? What can go wrong? I just became hypersensitive to risk. So I wanted a property investment strategy if interest rates went up, if I had more voids, if it was a buy-to-let strategy, if property values went down because there was a crash you know, and, and the market was stagnated for five years or whatever it might be. All of those scenarios, I still wanted a business that was going to make profit. And that's what led me to, to the strategy that I developed. Yeah. And, and, and HMOs, I mean, we can probably, I think I'd like to get your view on the future state of the market and, and maybe i'll we'll touch on whether hmos is in the current guys the future but maybe we'll park that one for later if we get the chance but i just think sure. um you also sure. mentioned that when you so you discuss you know you looked at hmos clearly made a you know it, well in fact you would use the word research i think either research or study for a couple of years yeah. if between decision and um you know actually making your first investment in hmos if i'm if i understood that correctly so Funny enough, that's another. So another couple of yeah. parallels between our stories. Funny enough, I also lost a home because of a business, prior business, and I, I right. my my two yeah. or two years was my four years of uh, of research. But okay. um, <laughs> some interesting yeah. parallels just to go there. But so what happened in that two years? Then so you decided HMOs, and then what did you do for a couple of years? You said you said um, so. I went to so I had uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah, so so I did two things actually in, in parallel. One was I set up another business, a little import and export business. I found a product in America. Um, I dropped it was a training, uh, it was like a big Meccano set, a training product. I bought that for seven thousand dollars, and then I had a small sales team on commission only that was selling it to schools and prisons and Royal Air Force bases for fifteen thousand pounds, and we're selling a couple of those a month. So very quickly, the entrepreneur in me kicked in and i think i was i was mentoring somebody last week actually and and talking about um you know they're, they're facing real hardship they invested into a um an ebt a sort of a tax scheme recommended by their accountant that the government have now basically said that you know was illegal and it shouldn't have been done mm -hmm. and he's going to be faced with a million pound tax charge so he's not going to be able to pay so he's probably going to go bankrupt oh. you know and and so in counseling, kind of mentoring and, and supporting him, he's a close friend of mine. Um, I basically said, look, when I lost everything, it's the best worst experience of my life. <laughs> you know, so, so actually what adversity can teach you, right, is to be creative. And that's what it forced me to do. It's like, okay, cut my costs right back. I don't have a source of income. Fine. Do I want to be, do I want to get a job? No, I don't. I'm unemployable. Um, I've, I've tasted freedom. I've, you know, I've, I've kind of, they say one in 20 people in the world, um, generally speaking, are sort of born entrepreneurs, if you like, or people that want to have their own business. And I certainly am, am one of those 20. So I didn't want to go back into employment. Um, uh, so I became creative and that's what I did. So, so I found a way very quickly to generate about 100 grand a year net profit from a business. It was never going to be a big business. It was very limited, but that took the financial pressure off and that took me about six months to do that. 
um, and took about two days a week of my time. So then the rest of the time was spent. What did I actually invest some of the money that I got from the equity in my house? It was in my own training and development books, courses. I went to America. I got to know Robert G. Allen, who the, was the founder of Nothing Down for the 2000s and a very um, successful real estate investor in in America. I got to know Brian Tracy, Bob, Bob Proctor. I went on Tony Robbins courses. I just got very, very active. I, I clicked with the Warren Buffett, you know, the best investment you can make in yourself. And so that's what I did. I, I up-leveled my personal and professional development. I got mentors, went on the courses, and it was really doing all of that, synthesizing the best of what I found, leaving the worst, to come up essentially with a with an investment strategy and a system. Um, so, you know, people say, I, I founded PPP. Yes, I did. But actually, all I did is I synthesized the best ideas I could find. I put them into a simplified system that you could teach other people. And that's what really, you know, that, that was what led me on a path through property to, to financial independence. Yeah, and it's a bit of Ray Kroc in that, of course, with the franchise story, I'm sure, with systemizing, processing, sure. and then, you know, leveraging, multiplying, scaling through through the franchise yeah. model. And, and that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think what was also interesting, and I didn't know, you had a you had a sort of a, a secondary income stream. Or pro- actually, it was a primary income stream, wasn't it? The the business that you started. Correct. Um, Correct. You had a primary income stream, which yeah. enabled you, bought you the time um, to do the proper research, and then, then you started acquiring uh, property assets. So presumably, uh, did you? How did you fund those initial investments? Was it all from your own, you know, sources of funding, or did you, at an early stage, start to look beyond yourself, if you like, in in terms of funding your your personal portfolio at that early stage? Yeah, first one was personally funded from from savings that I had from the house sale, uh, and actually, interestingly, you know, I, I made a my wife and I made a lifestyle choice, which was before we bought our own home we actually bought our first HMO, you know, so, so we made a strategic decision to say, no, we're going to stay renting. We're going to use the capital. We're going to build up our income. We're going to build up our capital through our property portfolio. And it was actually then after I bought two HMOs, then we, you know, then, then we basically purchased our, purchased our family home. So, um, yeah, so, so that was a, you know, it was a, it was a tough choice, but a strategic choice and a, and a very wise choice. And it's about, delaying gratification i think you know too many people make the mistake of wanting everything now and you know and and uh, you know for me money is actually very simple um you can learn how to make more um you can spend less uh or you can keep more of what you earn okay and they're three very distinct and separate skills you normally have three different types of advisors that help you do those things it's three different types of mindsets to do it so actually reducing our cost um and and that was one of the ways one of the ways that we did it so yeah the first one was my own funding the second one was self-financing in the sense this was pre you know the good old days Richard that you'll remember and some of the people listening will remember you know pre-financial crisis if you had a pulse you could get a 95 percent loan to value mortgage with a five percent gifted deposit it was it was easy right you could buy houses virtually using none of your own money completely legally um, and lots and lots of people were doing it. You know, it's what the what fueled the kind of the, the credit boom and it all, all got out of control. When the financial crisis happened, but actually even before then, because I was buying at such a pace, so what, you know, we used to do, buy a house, add value, and then refinance mm-hmm. at 90, 95% loan to value, pull all your money out. Most of the time I was getting paid to buy houses. I was capital raising, 
within sort of three months on on the refinance. So that so that was very good. But then I wanted to accelerate, and in two thousand and seven, I bought twelve properties, and I did that using some of my own money and that strategy, but also working with investors that had money, didn't have the time, didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the skill, and then I basically um, yeah it worked worked a system, created a system. I'm passionate about systems, mm-hmm. okay. That I wanted something that I could replicate and then go on to teach other people, and that's what I did. So, uh, uh-huh. yeah, and 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 since then, we you know I've taught that system to people and, um, through Platinum Property Partners and and other forums, and you know, over twenty million pounds of private investor financing has been raised using that system. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably you, I'm picking a lot of what you're saying and just thinking about the steps and the stages that you went through. But you know, quite clearly, you 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 went through a period of. Um, Proving the concept, you know, if you use business parlance, proving the concept uh, and then getting a track record, which then you could use to attract external investment, um, you know, at a, a future stage. Yeah. So, you know, you, you didn't immediately launch in and just exactly. have people throwing bunches of money at you saying, that sounds like a good idea, Steve. <laughs> go, go and buy a bunch of uh, properties. So, you know, I think another, another lesson learned. E- equally, you said, if I'm right in thinking, that you formed um, Platinum Platinum mm-hmm. uh, uh, Property Partners. That's right, isn't it? Let me get the right name. Um, was That's that right. 2007? Yeah. 2000, yeah, so I decided to franchise in end of 2006. I was basically uh, ran a training course with a, with a friend, um, which was a weekend seminar. You know, people paid 500 quid, loads of great information. We taught them everything that we knew. He was a very experienced property developer, did refurbs, renovations, had done over 200 of them. So he had much more property pedigree than me. I had more of an entrepreneurial and systems pedigree, and I'd also done a number of HMOs by that time. So we ran a training course. Feedback was great at the end of the weekend. But I went back to them out of curiosity six months later, and not a single person had bought a property. Mm. Okay. And he was just like, Steve, what well, doesn't matter. We've just, you know, 50 people. 500 quid a head, that's 25 grand a weekend. We paid the venue five, but we just made 10 grand each for two days' work. Mm-hmm. Let's just do that once a month. It's a nice little side income stream. And I'm like, but it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not. So, my Jerry Maguire moment, if you will, you know, when mm-hmm. he wrote his mission statement was what if I could create a business where 100% of people achieve the desired result? 100% of people were successful. And it was that founding principle that led to the formation and then the franchising of Platinum Property Partners because 94% of franchises after two years are not only still trading, but they're also profitable. Whereas nine out of 10, 90% of businesses, normal businesses that are not a franchise fail after two years. And so that was really what led me to, it was like, how do I give other people the best chance of succeeding? It's by franchising the business model. And and that's really what drove me in that direction. Sure. Uh, and, you know, there's, again, lots of stuff there. But I'm just curious because you started the business at the peak of the property market. And guess what happened? You know what happened um, to, you know, one to two years after that. Mm-hmm. So um, how was that uh, for your sure. you know, early stages in, in, in the franchise business? Uh, predictable. Huh? Yeah. So I didn't predict the credit crunch. Um, didn't predict the credit crunch, but if you go back to losing my home, me thinking about risk every day, what can go wrong, what can go wrong, what can go wrong, which yeah. is a mindset I still have today. Um, then basically, you know, no rose tinted spectacles. I'd hear these people running seminars, you know, doing mail shots, looking at websites, promising the earth, 
but actually when you you know when you drill into stuff um you know if it sounds too good to be true it usually is okay so so a healthy dose of skepticism so i made the assumption the property market will fall it always does you know it rises and it falls all markets rise and fall it's just that it's just the, the nature of what markets do and human psychology and behavior and following the crowd and, and all of those sorts of things you know booms and busts but the nice thing about property is historically and i believe in the future you know, it corrects normally by about 10 to 15%. And within five years, it's either back to where it was or it's gone gone back beyond it. So I took a long-term view, focused on income. So was I happy that not just my portfolio, but we had, I think, about 11 partners at the time, franchise partners, that their portfolios had gone down by 10 or 15%? No, we weren't jumping up with joy. Was I happy that we couldn't get 90% loan-to-value mortgages, only 70, then 75%? You know, no, I wasn't happy about that interest rates went down, you know, occupancy went up. So it was sort of swings and roundabout. All we needed to do actually for the business to continue was to get access to other money that was not just money from mortgages because that had constricted significantly. So we already had access to passive investors. People wanted a safe home for their money, giving a good rate of return. So we formalized that system and trained that to people and they started raising money. Um, and then about 12 to 18 months after that, I helped innovate with an IFA the first schemes, there's lots of them now, but to access money from SIPs and SASs, from pension, basically from pension money, um, from unconnected parties, and to do that in a legal and compliant way. I started that work in 2010, and we uh, we had our first one up and running in 2011, and that's a system that we still use today. Yeah, so you use the word predictable, and I'm sure some of the personal experience was there. Potentially, some of the people that you're engaging with and learning from might, you know, they may have taught, taught, you know, taught you, I guess, about long-term, you know, market cycles, etc. Um, you know, if you read and study these yeah. things, it, you know, things do repeat. Whether you say it's a, it's an absolute re- repeating cycle, 18-year property cycle, for example, has been talked about. Or you just understand that all markets do fluctuate and everybody who's been in the game long enough knows that because they've seen it a few times. You, know, you can't necessarily predict the exact triggers, but you can predict that they will, it will, things will fluctuate. But in other words, you built up some risk management and defenses um, and, and indeed some contingencies, um, in, especially in terms of the alternative funding sources, which is another good lesson because a lot of people who got taken down in the um, after the global financial crisis, you know, were very, very dependent on, let's say, a single institutional investor, uh, and perhaps didn't have a lot of yeah. equity or didn't have fixed uh, interest on their mortgages, and you know, there were, there were a lot of people who had a lot, you know, large portfolios who just got taken out, uh, which is extremely sad um, to say the least. So I, I think it's good that you built in those defences. And then just maybe on the whole story part, so you, you made another step change after that. So you, you have Platinum and then you've gone on and uh, undertaken other business ventures after that. So, you know, what led you to think about, well, what next? And, and then actually venturing into that rather than just saying, hey, this works for me. I'm happy with this and I'm just going to, uh, you know, knuckle down, bed in and, and make this work. What made you sort of look and keep looking at new avenues that you talked about in, our, in the intro? 
Sure. I think the it was it was two things really. One was um, the fact we had because I, you know, systems is in my DNA. I've read books on it. I trained with Michael Gerber, uh, who's written a book. If people haven't read it. It's highly recommended. That E Myth Revisited. I uh, got to know Michael Gerber. Um, you know, personally, <clears throat> he's worked with over 30,000 business owners around the world. He wanted to write a book with me called um, The E-Myth for the Real Estate Investor. Um, so systemizing platinum property partners, getting the right people in the right positions and turning that into almost a cookie cutter was, um, you know, it's worth saying that was not easy. Right? That took a <laughs> long time, a lot of hard work. Um, kissed, kissed a few frogs along the way. We made some mistakes, you know, wrong people, wrong positions, all that sort of stuff. Um, creating the culture, the values, the people. So getting that business sort of humming, which, you know, took from probably about 2007 to around about 2013, 14. Um, and so really 2013, um, what was the trigger that made me look at other things? One thing more than anything, and that was to make an impact. Okay. I wanted to make more of an impact so i feel incredibly proud that we've helped 355 families become financially independent or well on their way to becoming financially independent with a 94 percent degree of success okay and the ones that don't get ill or get divorced it's circumstances outside of our control um typically that, that make that happen um so one we you know seven thousand people live in a you know a high quality well-maintained home but actually, we then said, well, how can we make a bigger impact? What else can we do from an investment point of view? So partly it was driven by our franchise partners. Partly it was driven by wanting to make an impact. So I started to do a lot more philanthropy work, actually. I started yeah. that also alongside PPP. So supporting an orphanage in Uganda. I became the patron's president for Peace One Day. Um, started speaking at local schools and universities to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs and get kids to think differently about potential careers and talk about goal setting and vision boards and all of that sort of stuff. And I still I still do a lot of that um, today. So the philanthropic side was really kind of important. The second driver was then the desire from our partners to invest in other things. So we bought hotels and create you know created some service offices and we do large scale student rooms. We do Airbnb lets you know, th those sorts of things. So we, we have a commercial property mastermind program. So people that have done residential or are kind of questioning, you know, it's not for people that are, are novices that have not done any resi, but people that have done buy-to-lets or developing or and they want to move into commercial. We developed um, a 12-month kind of mastermind mentoring program that looks at service offices, hotels, larger scale sort of B&Bs, um, Airbnbs, gyms, you know, um, uh, sort of hospitality facilities, those sorts of things, restaurants, bars, that kind of stuff. So, um, so that was one driver. Um, then digital marketing. I've got a company called Bolt Digital that I'm a shareholder and a, an executive chairman of. Um, the reason for that, Richard, was the disruption in the marketing landscape. I saw it as a business threat uh -huh. that our franchise partners and my own businesses were going to be disrupted because of the move from traditional marketing to digital and social. And so rather than just employing some people to do that, I thought, actually, I want to own a business. I want that business to be in London, in the heart of my city. I want to get some of the best talent that we can. And so, you know, A, it's a great business. B, we can make a bigger impact. But, you know, most businesses fail because of poor marketing and, and that sort of thing. So that, that was the reason for digital marketing. 
And then the, the investing stuff, which is what I spend a fair bit of time doing now, is really social impact investing. So I'm the founding shareholder, for example, in a, uh, a, a new social media platform um, called The Impact Profile, which is backed by Jude Law and some of the largest corporations on the planet. Um, and that social media for social good, where you can showcase your personal um, good, essentially, that, that you do in the world. And that's, uh, that's going to be launching this September. So Yes, lots of different things, but primarily driven by how do I support our partners? What do they want to need? But also, how can I make a bigger and better impact and help more people? Yeah, and I think that's that's interesting. Your, your last sentence there was I was just interpreting what you're saying, because you've got on the one hand the sort of commercial mm-hmm. elements or investment elements. But on the other hand, my language, you've got yep. values and principles um, elements as well. And, you know, that's been consistent. I've been detecting as we've been speaking. So, you know. You've mentioned sure. things like your values and how you see the world, and you've got very clear position on that. You know, you only work with people you like and trust, and that you you want to make an impact. Uh, you know that you've been there's certain statements that you've been making which point to values. So, have you got more to add to that? You know, did you always have these values set? Have you been consistent and persistent in those, or has it evolved over time? Has it changed? Um, def- definitely evolved over time. I mean, that, that I would say that's a piece of work that has been ongoing and still is for 30 years, you know, so, so I, um, you know, there's how a gardener has got a model of, um, eight forms of intelligence. Okay. Called multiple intelligences. Um, and I read that book maybe in my twenties and, and I was really fascinated that up until that point, I thought it was all about IQ, you know, were you good at maths? Were you good at English? Um, but then he talked about sort of spatial intelligence. He talked about, interpersonal intelligence how good are you at communicating with other people the one that really fascinated me was intrapersonal intelligence how well do you understand yourself and a lot of the listeners i'm sure will know gary vaynerchuk if they don't look him up they'll either love him or hate him you know he's this american kind of social media guru but talked about a lot of life and philosophy and you know and and his number one thing um is self-awareness Actually, I, and, and I agree with him. I, I think knowing yourself, knowing your values. If you ask me my values, I can tell you straight off the bat, joy, truth, love, peace, freedom, legacy, abundance. Okay, seven core values. When it comes to making a big decision, that's my checklist. How do they, how does my decision or this person I'm going to, um, you know, go into business with or have as a client, this business opportunity, how does that relate to my core values, my personal mission, be more do more, have more, give more. Will this person, this opportunity, this business, give me the opportunity to be, do, have, and give more? Okay. Vision, making, you know, making the biggest um, possible impact that I can in, in the world, you know? Um, so for me, it's been a, a, a kind of a, a labor of love, uh, a process that's taken a long time. Um, also a process that, you know, you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need to survive, right? So if you are focused, like me, some people are listening to this are, you know, flat on their back, no income, no job, or they hate what they do, or they're thinking about getting involved in property for the first time. Um, you know, it's great for me to be talking about values, but probably the overriding <laughs> thing they're going to think is like, Steve, will you just tell me how to buy a house, you know, and make some money? So I can actually pay off the credit cards or, you know, get out of debt or provide for my family or pay for the school fees, you know. So so I think it develops. And as Maslow says, you know, you become self-actualized when you have your survival needs, your safety needs met, when your relationship needs are met, when you feel secure, 
you know, when, when a lot of that stuff is in place, then you can start to ask the bigger questions. And I've always been inspired by the Aborigines who, when they make a decision, they think, how will this affect not just us, not just next month or next year, in five generations' time, what will be the impact of this decision? Okay, and so that's how I try to leave my life. Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was a trained seven habits facilitator, Stephen Covey. And actually one of the exercises you do on that is you imagine you're at a funeral, it's your funeral, and you write your own eulogy. Powerful exercise, mm -hmm. very, very powerful exercise. Okay, and so for me, I think about my legacy all the time. You know, my legacy for my kids, my family, my business, when I go to sleep at night, I want to go, I want to, I don't want to have to think, you know, I genuinely hope there are very few people in the world that think badly about me. You know, people talk about haters and this, that, and the other, and sure, you're going to get them and, and whatever. I have very few because I try and make the right decisions. I think long-term and actually at the moment, Richard, you know, to, to take it to the fullest extent, um, I'm actually changing my will and my wife's will at the moment to, um, follow the 190 billionaires like Bill um, Gates and Warren Buffett who have committed to the giving promise. Yeah, yes. well, the yeah. giving pledge, sorry. I'm calling it the giving giving promise. It was a, it's, it's the only club in recent years I've not been able to join. It's basically you've got to be a billionaire and commit to giving 51% of your wealth or more away to charity in your lifetime um, or on death. And actually, I, I applied to join and I'm not the NS, so they wouldn't let me in. So I said, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, uh, so, yeah, so we're just having the wills. We've got the draft wills through now. And, and that's what we're going to do, you know, because I think I believe that I believe in capitalism, but I believe in doing well by doing good. And I think if more people get that message out and more people follow the lead of those sorts of billionaires and think about the positive impact they can make as well as making money they don't have to they're not in conflict those two things you know you can do both and that's really how i try to lead my life yeah i mean it's just i'll just let you roll with that it's just so much passion uh, that is evident in your answer there steve sure. thanks for that but equally i'm conscious that yeah. you've got a finite time available to talk to to us today so i don't want to sure. abuse that in yeah. any way so um and, and I, I could talk sure. by the way i keep talking to you for quite a long time <laughs> but um I respect that um, <laughs> there's probably a couple of things uh, sure. maybe and i'll let you decide uh, how you want to answer these one is maybe i, I did touch on it sure. earlier insights for the future um you you kind of focused on the hmo yep. strategy and i know you sort of you know systemize that to, to create a franchise model and then you've gone on and done yep. other things but you know what do you think about the property market going forward and then second of all I suppose, as a bit in, in closing, do you have any sort of general tips and advice um, that you might give to other people who might be at some other point on the journey that you've taken, probably at an earlier stage? Yeah. Uh, perhaps as a closing with a couple of remarks. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, so, yeah, so I think property – my view on the on the market is obviously it depends you know so if you're just starting out and you don't own any property whatsoever not even your own flat or your own home then actually that's a good starting point you know to think about getting on the property ladder if that's the that's the right decision for you and also if you're going to do that or you've already done it one principle i teach people is try and think about buying places to live in yourself and with your family that you don't have to sell when you move out okay 
So if you have that as a mental kind of construct and a principle through life, might all, not always be possible. And obviously you've got to think about the deposit and, and you know, how you fund the next one and keep, but think about, okay, what's my exit strategy? If I do need to move out, can I rent it? Can I make a profit from keeping this in the long term? So that is just a general piece of guidance I would give to pretty much everybody. Um, when it comes to then investing, um, think about the downside risk. Always, always, always think about the downside risk. Okay, so yes, you can trade property. Yes, you can develop property. But what's your exit strategy? Who are you going to sell it to in a down market? You know, what if interest rates go up? What if you get bad tenants? All that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, the, the final piece really for me is just actually about it's a professional investors market. When George Osborne changed the rules in summer 2015, you know, and a friend and I took him to the high court. We lost, but, you know, we, we gave him a pretty damn good fight. I met the chancellor. I met the, um, the housing minister at the time, Gavin Barwell. Fundamentally, what I've seen in the last four years is the market has changed because of governmental political pressure um, and the way that that system is set up and basically needing and wanting to win votes and win the next election. OK, so the um, unfortunately, what the government have done is they've gone down negatively on amateur landlords and accidental landlords with no plan B in place. OK, so great. You can stop one thing, but you're not starting another. Um, so I think, you know, one of my one of my visions is to help end homelessness. And I'm working with crisis and yeah. starting to do a lot more work on that front because I believe the government have fundamentally got it completely and utterly wrong. OK, um, and so does that mean property doesn't work? Absolutely not. But you need money. You need a system. You need support. You need all of those sorts of things. OK, um, to try and get involved. You know, anybody that says it's easy to get in property and you can do it no money down or low money down or nonsense, absolute nonsense. In this day and age, you don't have the experience. You need money behind you. So I think if you have the money and you have the right knowledge and skills, it's an amazing time because there's less people doing it. You know, there's a growing need for basic supply and demand. You know, more than 300,000 households a year, we're not building enough. We're not creating enough homes, land. Some landlords are leaving market, the anti-accidental and amateurs. So for me, great time to buy if you've got the commitment, the money, the dedication and the system and the support network to help you grow. So that's the answer to the first question. The second question, I would take people back in terms of what drives personal success um number one first and foremost is you have to have motivation okay you have to have a compelling reason both driven by pain and pleasure that you want to be successful that you can be successful a degree of self-belief okay but if you don't have the motivation if you're sitting there watching netflix for three hours every night you know and you're in a mental rut and you're just not actually um you know you don't have the motivation you can fix that you know go and see a coach speak to other people envisage some pain think about in five years 10 years 20 years time if you keep repeating that behavior what's going to be the negative consequence to you to your family to your kids to your health to your wealth okay so there are mental tricks that you can play to work buy books on motivation listen to podcasts like this <laughs> you know get inspired get motivated by other people so motivation for me is a fundamental necessity because it drives the grit the determination you know, some of the long hours, the hard work, you know, try and make it fun. So do 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 stuff that's aligned. Um, and three core principles, Richard, once you've got the kind of the motivation piece down, stand on the shoulders of giants, get mentors, coaches, become an avid learner and reader, invest in yourself, 
Warren Buffett says it, don't take it from me. It's the best investment you'll ever make. Okay. And that's reading and books and growing and learning, self-awareness, thinking about values, all of that sort of underpinning. Think of those of your foundations of you as a human being as the foundations of the strong foundations if you were building a house. And then the final point is upgrade and expand your network. Okay. We, some people say you are the average of the five people you spend most time with. I disagree. It's not scientifically proven, but actually it is scientifically proven that you're 67% more likely to copy the behaviors of your life partner. You're 43% more likely to copy the behaviors, the thinking and the results of your friends and your work colleagues. Okay. So they do have, it's not the distinguishing factor, but it is a vital factor. And if I look back over my life and other successful people, they are absolutely vigilant you know, and determined to upgrade and expand the network. It doesn't mean you get divorced. It doesn't mean you ditch <laughs> your best friend from school, but you might choose to spend less time with them. You might choose to bring other people in that actually have achieved more than you or are wealthier than you or have got a different mindset or they're happier or healthier or whatever it is you aspire to achieve. So motivation first, stand on the shoulders of giants, get mentors, coaches, support, invest in yourself and upgrade and expand your network and breathe. <laughs> yeah, and breathe. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Wrapple that out. And, and breathe. I was on one then. I was I on one. Were. I know you were. <laughs> Again, I can see. And you know, I, I am conscious. You got you got a yep. meeting in a couple of minutes. So, um, I guess just sure. for my final Thank point, you. and I don't know if you can answer this in one in one one word, but can can anybody sure. achieve what you've achieved? Or yes or no? Uh, the only person that can achieve what I've achieved is me, because it's unique to me. Okay. Can, can anybody be successful? No. If you're in a hospital bed in a coma and you, there is zero chance of you coming out of that coma, you're not going to have the same chance of being successful. You know, so I think, you know, so no, they can't, but can anybody with the desire to be more successful in whatever area of life, can they be more successful they can it comes down to one thing more than anything else richard and that is personal responsibility there is no such thing well the only thing there is is self-made but the only people that admit they're self-made are self-made successes you never hear somebody say oh do you know what i'm a self-made failure okay <laughs> it's about personal responsibility yeah. don't rely on the government don't rely on your friends don't rely on your wife or your husband don't rely on your business don't rely on anybody get their support engage i'm all you know i love partnerships but take personal responsibility every second every minute anybody ever spends making excuses blaming other people not taking away personal responsibility is a second wasted they are destroying their personal power okay your choice your chances of success the more you become or are an excusiologist, as some people call it, where you make excuses, you blame, you point, oh, poor me, this, that, and the other. You've got to get out of that. Take personal responsibility, and it comes back to doing those four principles on a regular basis. Successful people have successful habits, not just one thing that just happens to them suddenly. It's about if you want to master one skill that will change your life more than any, master habits. Master, how do you actually change your behavior on a consistent basis? That is what will get you a desired result. All right. People are perfectly aligned today to have exactly the results that they've got in their life. It's a consequence of your previous thoughts, behaviors, actions, and decisions. 
You want to change. You want the future to be different to the past. You've got to think, act, behave differently. And that comes through habits. I'm glad you didn't give me the one word version, Steve. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, but um, I am, welcome, I am respectful of your time. I'd love to keep talking to you, and you know, I'd like to carry the conversation on if we could sure. in some other way. Um, let's let's maybe take that off air. But I'd let you go now. I know you've got to dash off to yeah, for sure. Really appreciate your time sharing with me and our audience today, and I wish you all the best for the future and all the rest of the activities you've got in making an impact. Thanks, Richard. And I'd just like to say thank you to you for the work that you put into this and the value that you bring to lots and lots of people for for most of the time. No monetary reward. Um, the support that you've given David Masters, who you know, a friend of mine and somebody I, I, I've mentored, uh, and I just wish everybody listening to this the very best of success. Go out there, make an impact. Perfect. Well, that's not very kind of you to say. Thanks so much, Steve. All the best, and I'll talk to you soon. Well, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed the conversation with Steve. Um, I'm enjoying this whole series, to be honest with you, but um, and I've listened to a lot of the conversations that you haven't heard as well. So um, it's one of the best ones that I've ever been involved in, that's for sure, and I uh, really enjoyed it. Anyway, so there's so much, isn't there, that we could take away from what Steve shared there. I'm so grateful that he stuck around and added some more valuable gems right at the end, but also for talking quickly. So he got so much covered in the time that we had available. Um, you know, he started, he left school at 16 with uh, no qualifications and was stacking shelves in a supermarket. Let's not forget that. But I think um, through his apprenticeship in the outdoor pursuits industry, he learned his passion. So this is in his, uh, before he was 20, uh, coaching, mentoring, training and teaching. And as he, he used the phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants. So in other words, you can discover your passion at an early age and you don't necessarily need a formal education behind you to do so. He was very successful in his, uh, his, his, his 20s, uh, formed a business, and in his early 30s became a paper millionaire um, with a very successful business that had large market share. But as he, as he put it, the rise was followed by a fall. And he was very open about that, that you know, he almost went bankrupt. And in fact, the only thing that stopped him from going bankrupt was the equity that he'd uh, developed in his own home at the time. So that was a safety net, and I guess that's a good takeaway for us all, isn't it, to be aware of. Then he, he you know, gradually sort of picked things up and invested in himself. He ran a business along the side. Or I think he probably detected that. So he had, a, he had an income stream as he was also investing in himself and researching what he really wanted to do. And ultimately, that led him into HMOs, and he became financially independent by 2007, as he said, and then going on to franchise that business. Now, the thing with a franchise business, of course, is it's scalable, isn't it? It's leveraging other people. So you can reach other parts of the country by uh, systemizing the business. So that's the key takeaway for me from, from all this. So he duplicated himself and his business partner many, many times over. I think he talked about uh, over a thousand properties, for example. Subsequently diversified into other interests, as lots of successful people do. We did talk about the need for hard graft and grit. Uh, and that's because I'd seen a, a comment that he'd made uh, just before we, we started speaking, to be honest. And he said that, uh, yes, it's, it's important, but what we really need is to have a strong moral compass to understand our values, our mission, our purpose, and our operating principles. Well, none of that's about hard graft, is it? 
It's knowing ourselves. And he talked about that quite a lot. And he talked about finding things that we enjoy and then loving what you do. And there's a famous Steve Jobs quote. He says, he says, love what you do, don't necessarily do what you love. So anyway, that's perhaps a little bit off topic, but it did come to mind. He talked also about gamifying the system, finding ways to enjoy what you don't really enjoy. I thought that was quite a good mental hack that he shared with us. And uh, the best investment is in ourselves. Of course, this is in self-education. It doesn't have to be formal, as we talked about earlier. And and he, he after you know quite a lot of research, um, he, he, as we all probably know, property is one of the best ways to create and hold wealth. And that's what took him in that direction in the first place. But well, another thing was interesting was when Steve talked about being kind of risk averse. I guess that came out of having that business that collapsed and nearly took him under at the same time. So he uh, always looking out for the negative or the downside as being a bit of a, a safety net that he's operated since. And you don't often hear that sort of thing spoken about with entrepreneurs, do you? You normally think of risk takers. But I think in this case, Steve was um, maybe learned from that first experience. And still, obviously, you know, you can reach out as being an entrepreneur, but cover the downside risk as well. I love that line when he talks about losing everything was the best worst experience in his life. Um, yeah, because it shapes you, doesn't it? Uh, these failures, they shape you and you learn from the experience. But also, if you're listening to this and you happen to be that one in 20 who are born entrepreneurs, then, you know, listening to someone like Steve is going to be great, great for you to learn from, I'm sure. And um, I think another success principle, actually, what the point of this series actually is to find out, you know, the secret source or the, the fundamentals or the principles behind the success of some of these property heavyweights. And Steve said, if you remember, that he bought his first HMO, in fact, I think he bought two or three HMOs, investment properties, in other words, before he bought his, his own home again. He lost his first home because of the business collapse. He was in rented accommodation, as he mentioned. And he bought, I think, two or three investment properties, HMOs, before he bought his own home. So that's delayed gratification. That's another thing that comes out. Talks about surviving the financial crisis because it's predictable. Not that it was entirely at the timing, but cycles are predictable. And that's a really good takeaway for all of us who plan to be in the business for any length of time. And uh, having alternatives, uh, sources of funding was important there. So we talked about, for example, the pension funds. There's now crowdfunding, for example. So there's alternatives to the banks. I think that's what we're getting out there. And the, the other step change within Platinum, of course, it's a franchise model. And what does franchise depend on? Systems. So, you know, Steve said he's a big systems fan and uh, implemented a lot of systems and tried and tested and re-engineered re them, I guess, in uh, PPP, uh, Planet Platinum Port for uh, Property Partners, if I can say it, um, over the years as well. But what I also like about Steve is his philanthropic work as well, uh, which sits alongside his business interests. He, he said he tried to get into the, uh, the giving pledge, wasn't it? The giving pledge club, but he wasn't a billionaire, so they wouldn't let him in. So he created his own, the giving promise. And I admire that in him. Um, and I'm trying to aspire to something similar myself. Um, so, but again, we talked about uh, values that, that's been evolving gradually over uh, 30 years. And, you know, being self-aware and knowing yourself is such an important thing. But don't give up. Don't just do it once. You know, as you said, it's been evolving and been fine-tuned over 30 years. And he cites his values as, tr as joy, truth, love, peace, freedom, legacy, and abundance. And he uses that as a checklist in everything he does. I thought that was really interesting, to use his values as a checklist for every decision that he has to take. 
Um, there's so much I could say. I probably shouldn't be saying as much as I am, but just a couple of uh, other key highlights. Um, we talked about uh, his long-term thinking and the, the, the reference to the Aborigines look, thinking five generations ahead. That's long-term thinking. Um, and also, you know, doing good as well as making money. Um, so that was that was important. I think, you know, it's not all about making money, is it? It's also about, make, you know, making a difference, making an impact, yes, but also making a positive impact and giving back. And that came out loud and clear. Uh, closing remarks really says get on the property ladder as soon as you can and think about maybe what you can do with that property after you after you move on whether you can let it out or you can add value to it along the way and equally think about the downside risk the point he said earlier I think which is a a life lesson that he learned out of that business uh, business failure And, and and I'm so so grateful that he stuck around a couple of minutes extra I know he overran actually because he had another meeting to go to but he was keen. He was on a bit of a roll, wasn't he? And um, I, t- I talked about drivers of personal success. And he talked about motivation, didn't he? Um, you know, and you need to be driven by both play- pain and pleasure. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and those core principles, standing on the shoulders of giants, so having mentors and coaches around you, investing in yourself, that means getting an education, but also understanding your, your values, becoming an avid learner, and upgrade, upgrade and expand your network. Copying the behaviors of people close to you does have an influence on you. If they've probably heard me talk about that a couple of times, but I'll take it from Steve that it does. So it does matter who you spend your time with. Um, and then finally, can anybody achieve uh, success in the same way that Steve has done? Um, yes was the answer, um, but he, there was a big warning, wasn't there? A health warning. It comes with personal responsibility. We're all self-made, whether it's as successes or as failures. So uh, that's an interesting thought to hold, isn't it? Perhaps to maybe start to close uh, today's thing on. So how do we how to become successful? We come success, become successful by forming good habits. And that's the one thing that will help you the most, as Steve says. So think um, and act and behave differently by creating new habits if you want to achieve anything in life. And I think that is a great way to end it. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did too. I'm going to close off now because it's going to be too long. Otherwise, as most of these have been so far, but I hope you're getting great value out of uh, listening to these wonderful property heavyweights. So remember, if you want to talk about anything from today's show, we'll just talk property investing more generally. You know, you can always email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, and I'd be very happy to hear from you. The show notes, of course, can be found over the website, thepropertyvoice.net. And I guess that's all. All that's left to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.